Shall I confess, I come into the pulpit this morning with a sense of righteous indignation over the deafening silence of Christ during the Christmas season in our culture. You basically hear nothing about him in any of the media or any place you drive around or in any of the holiday decorations. And so, even though Christmas is past, we're still fairly close to it, but you must indulge me a little bit because I want to proclaim Christ this morning, if for no other reason than for you and for me. Atheists take pleasure in mocking the Christmas story and making fun of the babe in the manger of the incarnation of Christ. They make fun of of man's need for a savior because of sin. And of course, it's an even greater evil to see churches, pastors, misrepresent the person and the work of Christ. Now, of course, it's common among apostate religious groups to make the claim that all people are the children of God and, and we all worship the same God even though we call him or her with different names. Now, we're used to hearing that type of foolishness, but it, it is just so confusing to the world to hear these kinds of things. People have no understanding of who Jesus is. They have no understanding of their need for saving grace. They have no understanding that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So, who was that babe in the manger? This child named Jesus, born 2,000 years ago, whose name is still known around the world. Who was this infant born in utter obscurity to an ethnic group that were and continue to be the most despised people on the planet? This child that grew to be a man that never promoted himself a man that was despised, a man that was rejected, yet changed the course of history, a man that had no earthly possessions, not even a home, and wandered around for three years in about a 60-mile circle, constantly telling people what they did not want to hear, exposing their sin and exposing their hypocrisy, continually attacking the influential religious systems of other people, unmasking their hypocrisy, a man whose enemies admitted that he worked miracles but blamed those miracles on Satan. Who was this guy? A man who spent most of his time with the poor, the uneducated, the disenfranchised, social misfits, a man who chose untrained, uneducated, unwanted social misfits to be his representatives, a man that preached a message so utterly offensive and considered to be so ridiculous even among his own countrymen that they put him to death, a man who was willing to die and 
ignominious and excruciating death on a Roman cross condemned for crimes that he never committed. Who was this man whose birthday is still still celebrated 2,000 years later and yet no one wants to talk about him? In fact, his birth is still recognized as a division of our of the calendar era in which we live. And yet the world today despises him, refuses to talk about him. In printed media, in in the public square, we can't even sing about him in our public schools. A man whose birthday is celebrated by millions, who spend millions of dollars on gifts and extravagant parties, and yet will never mention his name at those parties. To do so would be offensive. It would be an embarrassment. School children are not allowed to sing about him. They can sing about Santa Claus and Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and a partridge in a pear tree, whatever that is but they can't sing about Jesus. Doesn't that seem odd to you, all of this, when you think about it? Of course it does. It it, it even seems bizarre. And I would submit to you that it is supernatural. There is a war going on. So who was this child that became a man whose life people despised and whose purpose people refused to concede? Who is this Christ of Christmas? Well, before his birth, an angel appeared and said to his virgin mother in in Luke's gospel, it says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. You don't hear that in the public square, do you? The angel came to her husband as well in Matthew 1 and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. But I would submit to you that perhaps the most comprehensive statement in all of Scripture describing Jesus, this Christ of Christmas, can be found in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20 a description penned by a Jewish rabbi who had a personal encounter with this Jesus, an encounter that radically transformed his life. And here is his 
divinely inspired explanation of Jesus, which was penned about 30 years after Jesus' death. Colossians 1 and verse 15, we read, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The first recipient of these words was a first century church in Colossae, which was a city in ancient Phrygia, uh, in the Roman province of, of, of Asia, to be part of modern day Turkey today. It was founded by a man by the name Epaphras. And Colossae was a church that had a mixture of both Jews and Gentiles, and each group brought with them all of their religious and cultural baggage. The Jews were known for their legalism. For example, they thought it was necessary for a man to be circumcised for salvation. They observed all of the rituals of the Old Testament and uh, Old Testament law like dietary laws and Sabbath restrictions and festivals and so forth. And they were also committed to rigid asceticism where they, they had a myriad of rules of self-denial that they had concocted. They also believed in the worship of angels and mystical experiences. And then, on the other side of the church, you've got the Gentiles that had come to Christ. And they were mainly Gentiles in that church, but they were steeped in pagan mysticism. They loved philosophy, loved to philosophize about the meaning of life. Who am I? Why am I here? Is there life after death? And of course, everyone had an opinion. And all of this eventually gave birth to what was called Gnosticism, which was really a product of, of Greek philosophy known as dualism, where basically matter was considered evil and, and spirit was considered good. God is good because he is spirit. But then when you start talking about Jesus, ah, no, nah, he can't be good because you're saying that God, who is spirit, became man, who is material. So... That brought great confusion to those people. They argued that, the Gnostics argued later on that he was just merely an, an emanation descending from God. He was less than God and all of this silly stuff. And the Gnostics also believed that there was secret knowledge that was only given to uh, certain uh, initiates, that, that a knowledge that would transcend Scripture. And you had to have this this knowledge in order for true salvation. 
It was only available to certain enlightened individuals. And of course, these kinds of deceivers breed like fruit flies. I mean, we've got them all over the place. You can turn on the television and you see them all the time. I, I think of this, of the New Age Hindu physician, Deepak Chopra. You've, you've heard him, the spiritual advisor at one time. I remember hearing about him being involved with this lady, Oprah Winfrey. Um, and of course, both of them are some of the great heroes of the democratic left and um, really an emissary of Satan. He, he wrote this, quote, God is not an external deity, but the inner intelligence within you that mirrors the wisdom of the cosmos. It's so sad. Words of a fool. A man who has no fear of God. So with these competing religious convictions and philosophies, the, the church at Colossae was a mess, a real mess. Like so many people today, they were confused about the question of, of, of who is this Jesus and, and, and what should we do with him? And these competing heresies in the church caused Epaphras to go to Rome to find the Apostle Paul who was in prison there to seek his counsel. And what we have before us is the inspired letter of the Apostle Paul who wrote this to bring clarity to them regarding a number of issues, but especially concerning the identity of Jesus Christ. And this, of course, would help the people confront some of the false teachers that were infiltrating the church. He wants them, according to verse 9 of chapter 1, to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And he went on to warn them in chapter 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. And of course, that's what was going on. These false teachers believed that, that higher wisdom was, was, was transferred through tradition to other special people. And, and, so, and by the way, this was a great tool of Satan to somehow refute the notion that Jesus was truly God. He went on to say... Look, according to the elementary principles of the, of the world. In other words, that which is earthy, that, that which is carnal and outward, rather than according to Christ. And of course, we still witness many types of deceptions today in the world regarding the deity of Christ and therefore God's command to worship Him. Thus, the, as I say, deafening silence about Jesus at Christmas. So beginning in verses 15 or in verse 15 through verse 20, Paul cuts right to the chase, goes right to the very heart of the issue. He reveals the supremacy of Christ over two categories that really encompass the entirety of man's existence. He describes, number one, his preeminence over creation, and number two, his preeminence over redemption. Now, this passage was probably a hymn or a common confession in the early church, a literary jewel that, that frankly, 
refracts the, the full color spectrum of, of spiritual light that reveals the glory and the majesty of Christ. And here God himself speaks through his servant, the Apostle Paul, and defines Christ, the Christ that so many demand must be excluded from Christmas. So first of all, let's look at his preeminence over creation, verse 15. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So here we learn that this babe in the manger was God. He is the image in the original language icon, which carries the idea of likeness. In fact, we get our English word icon from that. It's derived from that term. It it, it refers to a, a representation or a symbol, even a statue or a picture. He is the likeness of God, like the reflection of our, Im, of our image in a mirror. But it also carries the idea of manifestation. The very nature and character and being of God are perfectly revealed in him. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Christ. He is God, very God. And for this reason, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that we have, quote, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, as human beings, we are also made in the image of God. Genesis 1 tells us that. In certain ways, we bear resemblance to our Creator. And in, like Him, we have, we have intellect, we have a will, we have emotions, However, Adam's sin in the garden and the subsequent curse upon man has greatly marred the original image of man. And we see the effects of that all around us today. We are not holy as he is holy. Instead, we are sinful. Moreover, unlike God, we do not possess his incommunicable attributes, those attributes that God does not share with us. I mean, he is eternal. We are not. He is unchangeable. We are not. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. We are none of those things. But here the apostle is telling us that Christ Jesus is the perfect likeness and manifestation of God. He did not become the image of God when he came to earth or any time thereafter, but he is, it says. He is the image of the invisible God. In his incarnation, the invisible God became visible, that we might behold our Creator. John 1, verse 14, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. In Colossians 2 and verse 9, we read, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In chapter 2, verse 3, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Indeed, Christ is God made manifest. And it is for this reason that Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. John 14, 9. Hebrews 1, 3, he is the exact representation of God's nature. Philippians 2, 6, he existed in the form of God. And it says he was equal with God. And of course, this was Jesus' repeated claim when he was upon earth, upon this earth. He was eternally God's image. 
from everlasting to everlasting. And this is the consistent claim of the New Testament Scriptures. And because Jesus is God, he is eternally the image of God, making him, according to verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn, the prototokos, the first in rank or position, the one to whom belongs the right and dignity of the firstborn in relation to every creature. In other words, he is the highly exalted one, the one above every creature, the heir and the ruler of all. Now, this does not mean that he is the first created being in a long line of created beings like the Jehovah Witnesses and other cults would have us believe. But it means that he is the preeminent one. Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 2, In these last days God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, in ancient days, the firstborn son was accorded all of the rights and the privileges that were not shared by other siblings. Uh, The firstborn would have been the father's heir, the manager of the household. And, of course, all of this applies to the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God. Indeed, as we look at Scripture, we see that he is the self-existent, pre-existent, uncreated creator and sustainer and the preeminent inheritor of all creation. That's why in verse 17 it says, he is before all things. So, in order to refute the central theme of the the Colossi heresy, Paul begins by affirming the most important of all themes, and that is the deity of Jesus Christ the Christ of Christmas. He is not some created being. He is not some emanation from God and a long series of emanations. And then he continues to broaden the scope of his supremacy in verse 16. He says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and indivisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. When people see that little babe in a manger, they don't realize that that is their creator. Here again, Paul stresses Christ's preeminence above every creature. Regardless of whether they are material or spiritual, he created him, created them. In fact, the grammatical construction here indicates that He is the creator of the invisible in the heavens and the visible on the earth. That's the idea. And he says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. This speaks of the various ranks of angelic beings. Thrones and dominions speak of throne spirits like the cherubim that that dwell in the immediate presence of God around his throne. And rulers and authorities Generally, they're generally mentioned together in the New Testament and are believed to refer to, to lesser ranks of, 
of beings. They're all around us. They're present in this worship center right now. Hi, guys. They're here. Paul's point is simply this. How stupid to worship angels who are subject to and worship Jesus Christ who created them. That's the point. And notice also that he is, he is not only the divine agent of creation, he is the very goal of creation. Now think of that. He is the very purpose for all things to exist. The end of verse 16, all things have been created by him and for him. As I thought about that, I was thinking how he created all the angels to do his bidding. They are ministering spirits, we know, to the saints. Angels were, were with him at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Michael has been, the, the angel Michael has been the historical protector of Israel. Gabriel announced his birth at Bethlehem. Angels ministered to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They stood watch over the empty tomb. They accompanied him when he ascended into glory, and they will accompany him when he returns again in glory. Even the rebellious fallen angels who oppose him and serve their master Satan were created by him and even for him. How so? To accomplish his purposes in redemption, which is to bring glory to himself. He also created heaven for his abode, right? And heaven is a place to display his glory to his perfected bride, the church. That's us. Didn't Jesus promise in Matthew 25 that when he comes in his glory, all the angels will be with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Then in verse 34 it says, And he will say to his own, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And because of his holiness and sovereign rule over the universe that he has has created, there must exist a domain where sin is going to be punished. So this babe in the manger also created a place called hell. The eternal prison of Satan and his minions along with all who have violated his law and refused to seek his mercy and grace. Folks, this is the Christ of Christmas. No wonder no one wants to talk about him. But the apostle goes even further. Christ Jesus, the eternal word, created his earth and all that is in it. We read this, for example, in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him and apart from Him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. That was the first phrase that I learned in Greek class. They always start us out in the Gospels of John, right? It's an amazing passage of Scripture. He is the eternal word. And he, and he also created man for his eternal purposes. I love the way Spurgeon captures this in his own inimitable style. He says, quote, this creature, referring to man, 
knowing evil and knowing good, strengthened by divine grace, should, of its own free will, cling to the good and eschew the evil, and should be forever God's best ally against all who revolt, all who revolt in his dominions. For this creature, though, it had known evil, was to become a child of God and to be partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. These creatures, partly spiritual, partly material, were to have at their head Christ Jesus, who was to be the model of them all, and they were to be like him and to be his companions forever and to be to him more than companions, to be his friends with whom he might hold familiar intercourse and to be to him even more than friends, to be united to him in conjugal relationship to be so completely one with him that they should be, quote, members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, that his life should be their life, and that their life should be derived from him. And thankfully, by God's grace, when we come to saving faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ. We are placed in him, and we are forever hidden in him. Oh, dear friends, this is the Christ of Christmas, the one who is preeminent over creation. Verse 17, he goes on, he says, and he is before all things. This means he is before all things in time and in rank. He is the, shall we say, the preexistent forerunner, okay? He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, Revelation twenty-two thirteen. And he is infinitely above all things. Paul says in Ephesians 1.21, he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. <laughs> and if that isn't enough, Paul goes on to say, and in him all things hold together. The, the language is literally saying that in him all things continue to cohere. And so he is both, shall we say, the, the unifying principle and, and personal sustainer of everything that he has created. Hebrews 1.3 says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Can you imagine that? Even when he was an embryo in Mary's womb, he was upholding all things by the word of his power. This is staggering. And we look around and see an orderly system, don't we? In God's created universe. It's not a chaotic one. We look around and we see inviolable, fixed laws of physics in the material universe that maintain the unity of all the complex systems in creation. I remember reading once that the slightest change in the rate of the Earth's rotation around the sun, or the, most, or the most minute change of angle on its axis would cause the Earth to either freeze or burn. Physicists tell us that the slightest change in the mass of the proton would result in the dissolution of hydrogen atoms, which would, which, would cause, which would cause the entire universe to dissolve into oblivion. 
and physicists are still utterly baffled in trying to understand the nucleus of an atom and, and how it all holds together. And eventually the one who holds these protons together is going to release them in a period of judgment and the nuclei of all those atoms will fly apart. Peter speaks of this in 2 Peter 3.10, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. When I was young, I heard about the Big Bang Theory that created all things. They just got it mixed up. God created all things, but there's going to be a big bang that will end all things. And God will be the one to cause that to happen. And how sad to watch man try to understand the physical universe in which he lives, while at the same time rejecting the one who created it, who sustains it, all for his glory. Well, we've seen his preeminence over creation, secondly, his preeminence over redemption. Notice verse 18. He is also head of the body, the church. You see, here we see Christ's supremacy over his new creation, the church, where new creatures in Christ are united together by grace through faith. This living organism that he speaks about metaphorically, that he calls his body, of which he is the head. 1 Corinthians 11.3, for even as the head of every man is Christ, he says. And he goes on to talk about how he is the head of the church in other passages. He must therefore be the head of the church into which all believers have been immersed. The church, the ecclesia, it's an amazing thought that we're part of that. It, it, by the way, it means assembly, a congregation. It's a term that embraces all of the redeemed of God. The point here is he is the source of the church's life. He is the authority of the body. And like the human head of our body, Christ is our spiritual head. Not the Pope, who frankly is a charlatan that doesn't even embrace the gospel. It is Christ who gives life and growth and direction to this amazing body filled with, with so many vastly diverse creatures. I mean, just think of the diversity of gifts that we all have, and they all come from him. In verse 18, he says, he goes on to say, and he is the beginning. That, that is, he's referring to the origin or the source of the life of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In other words, the first one to be resurrected from the dead so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. In other words, that his preeminence might extend beyond the old creation into the new, that his supremacy, shall we say, might be universal. And someday it will be. Someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And moreover, his triumphant resurrection guarantees ours. It's an amazing thought. Because I live, you too will live. Romans 8.29, he has authority over life and death. 
Second Timothy 1.10, Paul says, It is our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, why would he do all of this? Well, Paul makes it clear in our text at the end of verse 18, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. In other words, so that he might have the preeminence in his regenerated church so that the whole world can know who he is. By the way, let me pause for a moment. Does Jesus hold this place of honor in your heart and in your life? I hope he does. Is he the priority of your time and of your treasure? As you think of a new year, is is he the one that you look at primarily and say, yes, I've got all these other things I must do with my family, my job, and so forth, but ultimately, Lord, I want to honor you, so I want to structure everything in such a way as to honor you. Is that you? I hope it is. So here Paul reinforces his point once again that Jesus is God. He's not some emanation of God. By the way, can you imagine public school teachers teaching what I'm telling you here today that comes from the Word of God? Can you imagine that? Or some professor in a university? Instead, they teach our children that they are the products of, I don't know, gas and sophisticated germs that somehow crawled out of a primordial swamp millions or billions of years ago and gradually evolved into the myriad of species that we see today. I was looking at some scientific journals once, and it says that there's 1.2 million species that have been cataloged. And they said that about 86% of, exist, of existing species on Earth and 91% of species in the ocean still await description. And most species are extinct. Kind of makes you feel about that big. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ had nothing to do with any of this. The diversification of all these species is just the product of evolution. Folks, the chimpanzees are running the zoo. More accurately, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John five nineteen, and the gospel is veiled. And this is the heartbreaking thing. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Second Corinthians 4.4. 4. Well, as we wrap this up, and Paul goes on to add in verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, in other words, God in all his fullness, the, the totality of divine powers, all of the attributes are found in him. All the fullness of deity dwells in him. The term dwell is a fascinating, fascinating term. Uh, it's a verb that suggests a permanent, not a temporary residence. And all of this was because of the Father's good pleasure that all the fullness of deity would dwell in Christ, his Son. 
but grammatically the verb rendered it was the father's good pleasure is also linked to something else in verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. And here again we see Christ's preeminence in redemption. To reconcile means to to bring about a, a change, to effect a thorough change back to a previous state. It implies a, a restitution to a prior state from which something has fallen, a change in this case from enemy to friendship. And reconcile is one of several terms in the New Testament to describe salvation, also to, to, along with, with justification and redemption and forgiveness and adoption and so forth. John MacArthur said, quote, in justification, the sinner stands before God guilty and condemned, but is declared righteous. In redemption, the sinner stands before God as a slave, but is granted his freedom. In forgiveness, the sinner stands before God as a debtor, and the debt is paid and forgotten. In reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy, but becomes his friend And in adoption, the sinner stands before God as a stranger, but is made a son. So Paul's inspired logic here is that not only were all things created by Christ Jesus, but all things are also reconciled through him. And how did he accomplish this reconciliation? Verse 20, having made peace through the blood of his cross. You see, sin ruined the original harmony between the creature and the creator and between creatures. But through Christ shed blood on the cross, sin in in principle has been conquered and the wrath of God has been completely satisfied by Christ Jesus, who is our propitiation. Peace with God is now made possible through Jesus Christ. And for this reason, Paul went on to add in verse 20, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. You see, because of Christ and his judgment upon sin, all that remains evil will one day be brought to justice. All of the wickedness will be punished. Their power will be stripped forever. Christ's reconciliation and his preeminence over redemption was promised by the angel. Remember in Luke 2, the angel comes to the shepherds. He says, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terribly frightened. The angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. A Savior has come, meaning a, a, a peace offering, a one who will make atonement for sin, a propitiation, one who can satisfy the justice of God on our behalf. This is good news. In other words, God has provided a way for reconciliation to take place through his son. Again, dear friends, this is the Christ of Christmas. And then the sky, you will recall, is filled with a myriad of angels and a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men in whom he is pleased. I've spoke about this before. Let me remind you again, 
Notice carefully the words of the angels. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. The King James Version says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Um, It's an unfortunate translation and many times people misinterpret this text and they use it out of context and you see it in yard ornaments and all of this type of thing, yard decorations, Christmas cards, peace on earth. What does that mean? Peace on earth. And of course, what people are thinking is, we want the absence of conflict. We want tranquility. We want peace of mind. Rather, the point of the whole thing is this. Because of sin, we are enemies of God. And we need to be reconciled to God through Christ. And only Christ can provide a way for sinful man to no longer be at war with God, to have peace with Him. Otherwise, the wrath of God abides on the unbelievers. We are enemies of God, the Scripture tells us. Colossians 1.21, we were once alienated and enemies of God. So the angelic announcement is simply this, glory to God in the highest because He has provided a way for reconciliation to take place. On earth, peace among men with whom He is pleased not goodwill toward men, which is usually interpreted as, uh, you know, let's just all show kindness kindness to one another, kind of a a sentimental version of do unto others as you would have them do unto you and so forth. Some people assume when it says with whom he is pleased, it refers to salvation through works. Just ridiculous stuff that people come up with. But literally, peace among men of his good pleasure. Literally, what the angels were saying is glory to God in the highest because those who are the sovereignly chosen recipients of his unmerited grace solely because of his good pleasure can now have peace with God, can be reconciled with God, to God, by grace through faith in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the great truth of Scripture. And this was the theology that evoked such angelic adoration. I hope that it does with you as well today. Oh, dear Christian, how can we as the undeserved recipients of God's grace do anything less than give Him praise even as the angels did? Who is the Christ of Christmas that no one wants to talk about? He is the one who is preeminent in creation and preeminent in redemption. So we can join the angels and say, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Which, by the way, is captured so perfectly by the hymnist when we sing, Angels from the realms of glory, wing your downward flight to earth. Ye who sing creation's story, now proclaim Messiah's birth. Come and worship, come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn King, who is coming again in power and great glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. May they bear much fruit in our lives that others would know who this babe in the manger 
really was and who he is today. May we not be like unbelievers who set their minds on the flesh and the things of this earth, but be true believers that set our mind on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. And may we make it a priority this year to exalt Christ in ways that we never have before. And Father, for those in our church family, those in our, in our physical families, those our friends, Lord, that don't know you, use us as salt and light that they might see the truth of the gospel and be saved. And as we embark upon a new year, may we have a renewed zeal for evangelism, a burden for the lost, knowing that the people that you bring within our sphere of influence who may not know you, who are part of the elect, when they hear the truth, they will eventually respond to it by the power of your Spirit. May we be bold to that end. So we thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.